good afternoon. I am Chrissy Hewitt, and this is Ears on Art, a segment of Issues and Ideas. Co-host Stephen DeLuke and I are delighted to bring you the annual December Storytelling Program. Bill Beeson started this 19 years ago, and we have enjoyed doing it ever since. Today, we have two possible themes that our contributors could select from. One, the best handmade gift given or received, or two, the story behind a meaningful object that you own. The five first-person narratives that you will hear were written by Ian Dellinger, Cindy Wilson, Paula Radke, David Preston, and Gail Johnson. Ears on Art, of course, is produced here at the studios of KCBX Public Radio. Next week, you'll hear part two of the December Storytelling Program. What is always fun about these stories has been the great variety, and this year is no exception. We start off with Ian Dellinger. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, rector of St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in San Luis Obispo and the presenter of Playing with Food on KCBX. I am often both proud and embarrassed to tell people that I have an enormous glassware collection. I have no idea how many individual items there are, but it has to be at least a thousand. The collection started by accident more than 20 years ago. My roommate at the time and I would go wine tasting in Napa and Sonoma Valleys when both the tastings and the glasses were free. Occasionally, on a night out, we would find a glass in a parking lot and add it to our collection. I won't tell you how I obtained my A&W root beer mug. And then, when I started traveling, mostly my first trip to the United Kingdom, I bought commemorative shot glasses because they were affordable and small enough to fit in my luggage. When my roommate and I went our separate ways, namely, I was off to seminary in England, she said that I could have the collection of wine glasses. My shot glass collection had expanded to about 100 by then, so all this glassware sat in storage in my sister's leaky garage for three years. While I was in seminary, a new collection started. The British tend to leave pint glasses all along the streets, so I had a sizable collection even by the time I finished seminary in Cambridge, and my shot glass collection grew too. Others caught on to the shot glass and would bring me one from wherever they traveled, and occasionally I popped into thrift shops to find uniquely shaped glasses to add to the collection. Most recently, the house I rented when I moved to San Luis Obispo still had all of the kitchen items and dinnerware in it, and I had my pick of what I wanted. The previous occupant, my landlord's mother, clearly had a penchant for glassware too, and I added about 50 pieces to my collection. But that's not the interesting part. Many people have lots of glassware. Many a person has visited my home and commented on the collection. I tell them that the individual pieces tell stories. The logo on the Atlanta 96 Olympics pint glass is almost completely gone, but I still know which glass it is and can then recount my time there, even where I was when the bomb went off. The Charles Krug tasting glass reminds me of the many arguments my roommate and I had over which Mondavi brother made better wines. The Foxen tasting glass made the journey from Santa Maria to San Francisco to London and to Cambridge in my suitcase, and it's now back only a couple dozen miles from where I got it. The Glühwein mug from Munich is a reminder of my inability to speak German, yet still communicate that I didn't want any Glühwein, just the mug. Very few, if any, of the individual pieces could be considered precious, but the collection as a whole has meaning beyond the sum of the individual parts. Of the two pieces that might carry personal meaning, 
One is still pretty silly. I bought a set of ball stem martini glasses at BevMo in San Francisco in 2003 after an epic drive across America with a fellow English seminarian. He flew back to England, and I headed to a nine-week placement with the Anglican Diocese of Peru, glasses in tow. They made it safely to Lima, then back to Cambridge, then to Manchester where I was ordained. The one time I almost broke one was the move from Manchester to Warrington, only 15 miles down the road. Today, they proudly sit on my bar and are used in the manner in which they were intended. The other piece was acquired when I moved back from England to Slough in 2016. My mom had a shot glass that was given to her father when he was six years old. The glass, which is actually a mini beer mug, is 103 years old with my grandfather's name, Bobby, and 1915 painted onto it. So my materialistic superficial collection of glasses does actually have deep meaning. Many aspects of my adult life are represented by them. It would be fun to have a biographer spend time with my glassware collection and write a biography of my life, the life of Father Ian through boozeware. I wonder how accurate it would be. Hi. I'm Cindy Wilson. I'm a pediatric physical therapist for California Children's Services, and I live in Santa Margarita. Today, I am going to tell a story about something that's special to me. After my father passed away, I found myself in possession of a box of old photos of my family, beginning in the early 1900s. I was most enchanted by the pictures of my great-grandmother, Julia, which began from the time she was a teenager. Through the pictures, I feel I grew to know and love this young woman who appeared to always be enjoying life and living in the moment. I knew my great-grandmother had been an artist as we have three of her paintings hanging in our house, one she dated 1899 with her signature. I also found from a picture that she was a baseball player on a woman's baseball team, donned in a baseball uniform with baggy pants and belted waist a baseball journey with the team initials across her chest, squarish hats, long socks, and athletic shoes. One young woman was wearing a catcher's mask. After so many pictures of a proper young woman in a beautiful dress, I felt proud to see the strong, athletic woman that appeared to be the captain of the team. I could imagine those young women swinging bats and wearing pants, all this in the 1900s. Several other pictures were of her picnicking, hiking, and riding a horse, all in formal clothes, usually with my great-grandfather Marcus. That the clothes did not impair her athletic endeavors was fascinating to me. She always appeared to be having the time of her life, whatever she was doing, giving a broad smile to the camera or whoever she was with, or a playful look. I wished I could have been there, getting to know her. She seems so full of life and fun-loving in those pictures. A couple of my favorite pictures are of Julia and Marcus sitting under an umbrella at the beach, she in her long dress reading, and he in his suit and tie lying sprawled directly on the sand. Growing up, my family always loved the beach, and I think of all the pictures we have of similar scenes, except for the clothes. Those traditions were probably started with Julia and Marcus, or their parents, there is a picture of Julia with her sisters and mother, obviously having a great time together. They are in a park with long hair pinned in chignons and, as always, elegantly dressed. I look at that picture often, sharing a sense of fun and wit I can only imagine, with family that seems to be familiar and loved. 
There are many, many other pictures, but these stand out. The box of photographs has given me a sense of discovery of my great-grandmother, Julia. I feel I have become acquainted with her diverse personality and gained an understanding of how many family traditions and hobbies were established generations ago. I also have gained love for a person whose life is in the distant past, but who has come alive through these pictures. This is Polly Radke. I'm a glass artist from Morrow Bay. Dr. Masuru Emoto passed away in 2014. Dr. Emoto studied how human emotions have an effect on the molecular structure of inanimate objects. He did experiments by freezing one crystal of water and comparing the structure of different water crystals. The crystals formed from water that had the words love and gratitude written on the bottle holding it before the testing formed perfect crystals, while the other sample, which had been exposed to negative emotions, developed barely any recognizable crystal at all or misshapen at best. I have a valued friend who loaned me Dr. Emoto's book, The Hidden Messages in Water, and I wanted to thank her. I had found the book fascinating. I created a plaque in art glass using fusing techniques and art glass clay that simply said, love and gratitude live here. I thought if she put it near her water system, perhaps she would have happy, beautifully structured water. She keeps it on her fireplace mantle. Maybe I wasn't being clear on the power that thing had. Or maybe she knows and has concluded it can handle the distance from the water system and still work. Love and gratitude do live in her home every inch of it. It doesn't hurt to have a physical reminder of that on one's mantle. I'm quite sure her water is beautiful, too. Another gift that was perhaps misunderstood, or was definitely misunderstood, went to my mother. I cast in glass a small bust of a traditionally built woman, maybe two and a half inches tall. She was similar to the Venus of Willendorf. If you don't know about the Venus, she is a Paleolithic female figure, a sculpture presumably carved 28,000 years ago. She is voluptuous and very full-figured. I guess the point I'm going for here is the shape of women like Venus has been appreciated for 28,000 years. Anyway, back to the gift. I was pretty happy with my little sculpture of an abundant woman, so I decided to send it to my 89-year-old mom in Michigan. I didn't hear from her. I didn't hear from her. And two weeks later, I still hadn't heard from her, but my sister did call me. Ooh, did my gift backfire. She was screaming at me. Is this what you think we look like? Both my mom and sister have the same shape as Venus. It was my intention to celebrate the female shape, and I deeply offended not just my mother, but my sister as well. Mom gave it to Sis to be rid of the offending sculpture. Sis called me because she wanted to get rid of it too and wondered if I wanted it back. I told her to bury it in her garden upside down, and maybe she would get the Barbie doll figure she was so upset about not having. That sounds mean, but my sister and I have laughed over the old wives' tale that suggests that you bury a St. Joseph statue upside down by your front door if you are wanting to sell your home. It is supposed to bring you a buyer immediately. Good luck with all of that, and at least I tried. I'm David Preston. I teach in Santa Maria, and I'm a founding partner at the Preston Mediation Group. Wow, I think. I get to tell an entire listening audience about my favorite gift. Now, how to decide which gift? How should I judge my favorite? 
It shouldn't be the most expensive, but what if it is? What does my favorite gift say about me? How much of myself do I really want to share on the radio? Should it be a gift from my wife or my children? Or maybe something nostalgic for the holidays? Should it be really personal or emotional? Should it be something my childhood best friend gave me before he died? After giving it some thought, the answer became obvious. I decided on Tara. One June afternoon in 2006, I sat in a second-story cafe overlooking the street in Laza, Tibet. Across from me was Sering, a former monk who had served nine years in prison. Chinese law enforcement officers arrested Sering when he crossed back over the border from Dharamshala, where he was visiting the Dalai Lama. We were both eating yak stew. I watched Sering take a few bites, and then I asked, Sering, aren't you supposed to be vegetarian? What about suffering and sentient beings? Sering looked at me over his steaming spoon, now poised halfway to his mouth. In this part of the Himalayas, he said, protein is hard to come by. Sering ate the bite off of his spoon and gave me a crooked smile. Besides, he said, it's a small sin. After lunch, Sering invited me to visit his family. I gladly accepted. Sitting in the tiny living room of his apartment, we hunched over our yak butter tea. Sering noticed me looking at the silk tapestries on the wall, and he asked me, do any of the Tonkas speak to you? Earlier in my life, that question would have seemed ridiculous. But over the years, I began paying different types of attention to things I wasn't expecting. That's how I wound up in Tibet in the first place, which is a different story, but it humbled me and made me a lot less judgmental and a lot more receptive. In the moment when Sering asked me, I heard his question the way he meant it, and it made perfect sense to me. I was staring at the tanka just to the left of the kitchen door, and it was compelling. There was something about it, the colors or the facial expression or something that held my attention more than the others. So I asked him about it. Oh, that one is very special, Sering said. That is the white Tara. He went on to explain about white Tara's attributes and teachings. But the best part, Sering said, is why she's here. It turned out that the Tonka was a mutual gift given by Sering and his wife to each other on the day of their wedding. This still has a great deal of good in it, Sering said, removing the Tonka from the wall. Smell it. You can still smell the incense and the yak butter candles from the monastery. I leaned in close and inhaled. It smelled just like the inside of the monastery I had visited the day before. Then Sering rolled the Tonka in a white silk scarf and held it out to me with both hands. He said, you should put it deep in the biggest pocket of your backpack so that the Chinese don't take it at the airport. The Chinese did not take it at the airport. I've never packed anything so mindfully in my life. The Tonka has hung in my home ever since. It hangs right outside my daughter's room. My daughter was born almost exactly three years after I returned from Tibet. Her name is Tara. The real gift of Tara keeps on giving. Every time I slow down on the stairs to really look at it, I reflect on Sering's question. I smile because Tara still speaks to me. When I look at Tara, I see Sering and his wife and children giggling as I tried to balance on the couch to fit them all in the picture. I think about love. I think about how my daughter Tara has shown the compassion and loving kindness represented by the symbol in the Tonka. I remain amazed at Sering and his wife's gift and their willingness to part with it. They gave this gift to each other and to me with so much joy. I remind myself to be willing to part with it, whatever the it is.
Looking at that tapestry is the best kind of augmented reality. It's a curriculum of life lessons wrapped in an adventure. The stories we tell are usually about what's important to us. The stories we repeat strengthen our sense of ourselves. Tara is my favorite gift because it comes with the strongest stories that remind me of my best self. And that's my favorite gift. Hi, my name's Gail Johnson, and I'm going to tell you a story of how a coin forged in the days of Caesar traveled from the hills of Italy to the workshop of a craftsman, to the hand of an artist, and to the wrist of their friend. When I was much younger, I had a dear friend and mentor who was a boat builder, a furniture designer, woodworker, and carpenter. He partied in New York City lofts during the reign of Warhol and Pollock and was a neighbor to Richard Diebenkorn in Santa Monica. He test drove Maseratis in the Alps and built imaginary towns for Standard Oil in the desert of California. He told stories of his exploits in Europe, his single-handed sailing adventures, and his exotic past. While building a church in Italy, he said his shovel hit a piece of iron that turned out to be a Roman coin. I never knew which of his tales were myth and which were true. He fancied himself a great thinker, but I knew better. I liked him for the beautiful gifts he made for me, for his creative inspiration, and for his stories. After 20 years of devoted friendship, he died. Not the way you would think a 90-year-old man would die. He was rigging up an electrical outlet and, well, let's just say he didn't languish in bed in his later years. As I was cleaning out his desk, there it was the Roman coin, chinked by his shovel in the hills of Italy. I have another dear friend, a gifted silversmith, sensitive and kind, an old soul who understands the 60s aesthetic. I asked her if she would consider making something that would include the coin to honor the memory of my friend, to which she enthusiastically agreed. The design of interlocking silver circles speaks of the 60s and betrays the creator. The bracelet incorporates the coin, yes, but is also set with jewels of exotic wood, teak used in boat building, paduke, and rosewood as hard as stone, as tough as my friends resolve. I believe that artists imbue their living energy in the original pieces they create. The bracelet is a precious object, but it is more. When I wear it, I hold my friends near. I believe that artists imbue their living energy in the original pieces they create. The bracelet is a precious object, but it is more. When I wear it, I hold my friends near. Each of us are products of the gifts we are given and what we make of them. In this season of appreciation, I hope you make the most of your blessings. Today's storytellers have been Ian Dillinger, Cindy Wilson, Paula Radke, David Preston, and Gail Johnson. Next week, we'll include works by Stephen DeLuke, Bill Beeson, and me, Chrissy Hewitt. You have been listening to Ears on Arts' December Storytelling Program, Part 1. Please join us next week for Part 2 of our annual storytelling programs. My name is Stephen DeLuke, and for co-host Chrissy Hewitt, thank you so very much for listening, and have a good week.